Welcome back to another episode of Bush School Uncorked. I'm your host, Justin Bullock. I'm your co-host, Gregory Gauss. And we are recording live in historic downtown Bryan at Downtown Uncorked on a Tuesday at 6 p.m. I got it all right, Pilot. That's, that's a good timestamp. <laughs> we want to thank our friends at Downtown Uncorked for hosting us once again. And we particularly want to thank them for keeping the noise down this time. Because the last time we... They, they had, I think they had every Democrat in Brazos County was here. How many? And, uh, it was <laughs> 12, or, you know, it was, it was, I think it was the meeting of the Brazos County Democratic <laughs> Committee, and, and they were a rowdy bunch. And, and so I, it's a little quieter today, and I think that, that, is, that, that that's a good atmosphere for a, a discussion of a serious topic. And we actually have somebody who knows something with us this time, whereas last time it was just me and you rambling on. We actually have a true expert this time. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> and, and how unusual for us. How unusual for us. Um, so a couple announcements before we uh, introduce our guest and jump into our topic this evening. Um, we have two more live recordings coming up in October. Those will be on October 22nd and October 29th. Both those are Tuesdays coming up later in the month. The first will be is titled The Third Sector and Improving Outcomes for Society. Uh, Professor Will Brown and Ellie Shu are supposed to be with us that evening. And then on October 29th, Professors Ann Bowman and Rob Greer will be with us and we'll be discussing local governments as engines of policy innovation. So that's that'll, what's going That'll lead us into Halloween. That'll lead us into <laughs> Halloween. And we'll shift from international affairs to all the way down to, <coughs> to the local. Affairs. To the local. Okay, I think that's all the uh, all the announcements I have. You, you know what our slogan here at, at Bush on Court is. What do we have now? Think local, drink global. No, 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 it should be think global, drink local. Oh, I like that's, that. that's, that's better, yeah. That, that's what it should be. Yeah. All right. We got good jokes early today. We're not even wound up yet. With us today, we have Professor John Schuchler, who is one of our colleagues at the Bush School at Texas A&M University, and I'm going to let him just take a moment and tell us uh, a little bit of his intellectual history, academic history, how can I see himself as a scholar and his current positions? We had him on last season as we were talking about the uh, Albertan Center for U.S. Grand Strategy, and uh, he's kind enough to come back with us. We didn't yeah. uh, make it too unpleasant the first time. No, no, it was Rosh's fun. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, just as a reminder, yeah. if you can uh, tell listeners who you are, how you see yourself as an academic, and uh, kind of what you're working on now. Sure. So uh, thank you for having me. I'll kind of start with the present and wind back briefly. Uh, so, uh, currently, I'm an associate professor in the Department of International Affairs, where I work for Dr. Greg Goss. He's our department. I'm his boss. That is correct. Boss is here. Um, uh, and so, in that capacity, I teach courses on international relations theory and American grand strategy. Um, I am also one of two academic directors of the Albritton Center for Grand Strategy, which is a relatively new center um, that we talked about last time. Uh, before coming to the Bush School, now four years ago, basically, uh, I worked. Time does fly when you're having oh, fun, doesn't it, John? Four years. Time flies at the Bush School. Um, this is our sixth year, Greg. Yeah. Can you believe that? Oh my gosh. Nutty. Um, so I, I came here. I, I worked for seven years at the Air War College, which is a graduate school for largely military officers, and I taught in the Department of Strategy there. And uh, I, before that, I was getting my PhD at the Department of Political Science at the University of Chicago, uh, which is known for its emphasis on theory, 
um, and history, which are my two... My and, and cruelty. And cruelty. My first, second, and third loves. Um, and, and, and yes, it's known, uh, uh, it's known for the realist tradition, which uh, I was socialized into, although, again, my first love is theory more broadly. But, but yes, realism did wear on me over time and, and, and tends to be how I think. So. Although, we'll, it just we'll, chips away. we'll talk a lot about realism. I'm excited. Yeah, because you know, there's lots of grand strategies that fall under that there could realist be. Yes, tense. There could be, including President Trump's. Well, let's just jump right in. Is there anything else, John? Did you, is there anything else we should uh, uh, capture about you? For the I, I don't think so. I, I wrote uh, my first book, "Deceit on the Road to War," about presidents and their lack of candor with the public about major war decisions. That. that Lack of candor means lying. lying. <laughs> I deception is a little softer than lying. Um, and, no, uh, and covering that I, book was actually. I read the book. It's about lying. <laughs> <laughs> this was actually one of the first episodes of um, Public Problems as well. Yes, right? yeah, yeah. You came and yeah. talked about the, uh, about the book. And then I've also written about um, a realist approach to foreign policy. And I've written a more recent article about the Trump administration and their approach to NATO, and and some of the uh, some what what light history can shed on on kind of their rough bargaining tactics. There we go. So, I want to get to grand strategy and the current administration quickly, but for the audience, um, because I'm new to international affairs and knew little to nothing before I came acquainted with Greg, and now I feel like I have a distorted view. Um, but what is, what we're is realism? We're here to educate, not <laughs> What is... And that's my job with you. <laughs> yeah, I need it. Um, what, is, what is realism? So before we go and kind of think about the big picture of grand strategy and how we might think about a, a U.S. grand strategy, what, what, is, what is realism? I know we've talked about this before on the podcast, but just give me the quick snapshot of... Um. What is realism? And in hour two, we'll start talking yeah. about uh, Are you sure you want to open that uh, Pandora's box? Uh, at the broadest level, realism is, well, it's an intellectual tradition that leads you to emphasize certain things over others. So what does it lead you to emphasize uh, power defined in material terms? Um, it leads you to emphasize the national interest defined in terms of power. Um, and it leads you to kind of, in, in terms of statecraft, an emphasis on prudence um, and emphasizing the vital over the peripheral or the uh, necessary over the desirable. Um, and realists then tend to be very interested in how to place limits on the use of power that reflect those basic enduring factors of power, the national interest, et cetera. And, if you want more, just take my higher theory class where my students <laughs> are in, have to endure weeks of this kind of discussion. So, so, so yeah, okay. But prudence is, it, 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 that's a particular brand of realism because Attila the Hun was a realist too, right? I mean, he was all about material power and conquest and, and uh, I think it would be, we would be hard pressed to say that every realist strategy is a prudent strategy. Power maximization can, it can take you beyond your, your means, but you could be going to maximize your material power in a way that I think realists would say, yeah, sure, that, that's the way states behave. Well, I, in the way I understand prudence is, uh, 
basically um, don't do any more than you have to. But at the limit, there is this problem, which is no one can, if no one can stop you from doing anything, then there's no limiting principle. So realists have always had this kind of ambivalence about power. On the one hand, you want to have a fair amount of it because if you don't, you can be bullied. On the other, if you have too much, it's corrupting and can lead to excess. And that's where the emphasis on prudence comes from. The issue I think that you're pointing to is there's nothing within the framework that says only do so much ex unless you know the costs start outweighing the benefits. And that's why there's usually a lot of pushback against realism for not having some limiting, some moral standard that says, no, use your power right. for this purpose. Right. Now, conveniently, being an American realist, that problem is solved because in our view, many of our view, the U.S. is a very secure country that doesn't actually have to be very active abroad. And so it's easy to say this or that is not prudent because it's not necessary. It's we've hard. Got, we've got thunder and lightning. The Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific exactly. Ocean, right? We, and, we are protected. Know, we, Although Canada blessed. is, these Canadians. <laughs> <laughs> I feel threatened. Right. Yeah. But yes, that's that's that 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 is the point. It's different if you are Germany in 1914 or China today, where, you know, some realists would say, you know. China today, yes, you're being aggressive, but we get it. You know, you're um, a rising power, and uh, you deserve to have more sway in your neighborhood. And who are we to tell you you can't throw your weight around? So, so um, is it that that's that might be a good segue into some of what's going on now? So, would you say it would it would fall under the tent of of the theory of realism for the Chinese to be very aggressive in the South China Sea? To, to do what they're doing, to build out these, these artificial islands, to establish uh, claims on, 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 on uh, territorial control at sea, to uh, push against Taiwan, which they've been relatively reluctant to do, but who knows, to push against Vietnam, to push, to, to push against the United States. Is that a realist strategy? It, or, or is that it could be. And, and again, um, as my students can attest, there are a lot of intra-family disagreements within realism. Probably the most important is the offensive versus defensive realist debate, which gets right to this question. The basic offensive realist position is um, every other great power should want to be like the U.S. in the following sense. The U.S. has it made. We're a hegemon in the Western Hemisphere. And we don't have to worry about anything. The Canadians, the Mex you know, we're surrounded by... I, I will still say we might have to worry okay. about the Canadians. <laughs> South Park movie aside. But, uh, uh, well, you can go back to Canadian bacon, which was... A, a, yes, that's know, true. Was that, a, was that an attack? Strange, strange Brew was also, I think, based on a Canadian-American So if you set aside the insidious Canadian threat, um, the point is, why shouldn't China... Uh, seek to achieve the same hegemonic status in their neighborhood that the U.S. achieved in its neighborhood, because if you can achieve that, you have it made. Now, the defensive realist counter is, um, it's one thing to aim for dominance in your neighborhood if you can actually achieve it, but if the attempt at getting there is going to ruin you, which it tends to do <laughs> to the great powers that have tried it, um, it's the game's not worth the candle. So, and beyond that, in most situations, um, to be secure, you don't need that level of dominance.
sense. You know, uh, great powers can actually coexist um, more than the offensive realist perspective would lead you to expect. And, and the point that I think a lot of people would agree on is the U.S. is just a weird case. It is hegemonic. We are, we are weirdos. We're There's weird. Absolutely. We, no we achieved about hegemony it. the cheap and easy way. There just wasn't a lot of opposition as the U.S. was rising to hegemonic status well, in the well, 19th century. I, I don't know. World War II was we were cheap. Our, we were already a regional hegemon. Oh, by, regional by, hegemon. Yeah, okay. Um, not global, but, but so the point is that, you know. Thank you, President Monroe. Thank, well, I mean, it, it certainly has made me more interested in that, in the founders and in the Civil War period, because that is the story of American dominance as written in the 19th century. That's where, and since then, it's basically just been about uh, maintaining our status as the only hegemonic power in the system. We should probably say for some of the listeners that the Monroe Doctrine was uh, announced by President Monroe, uh, actually formulated by his Secretary of State, who was John Quincy Adams, who succeeded him as president, who was probably America's greatest 19th century diplomat, John Quincy Adams. Stop nodding. It's a podcast. <laughs> say yes. Sure. you got to say yes. Yes, say yes. I agree with you, <laughs> That 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 basically said, at a time when America really didn't have the naval power to enforce yeah, it, yeah. that the United States would tolerate absolutely no European interference anywhere in the Americas. North America, South America, anywhere in the Americas. And we were fortunate enough that, that European power politics allowed us to enforce that doctrine with very, with, while we were building our power. Yeah, so, uh, you know, the, the consummate if you are a regional hegemon like the United States, uh, a lot of realists would argue that you know the next step is to quote be an offshore balancer. And the point is, um, you want if you want to be basically uninterfered with in your neighborhood, you want to keep all the other major powers busy competing with each other in their neighborhoods. And um, how do you do that? Well, you kind of intervene when you have to to prevent any one of them from dominating. Um, which I think does a decent job of explaining when you get the big movements, the intervention into World War I, the intervention into World War II, containment to some extent in the Cold War. I think that's not all that's going on, to be clear. I think realism has some blind spots about some other ambitions in American grand strategy. But I think that's an important part of the story, that this isn't about morality. This is about sitting pretty. The U.S. is a great place to live because we don't have to deal with threats. I, I will say that ten times and repeat it. Um, I think it's a great place to live for other reasons as well. well sure. <laughs> I mean, if it were a police state without, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Police, but, uh, a police state with no threats wouldn't be the greatest place but, to live. Uh, but. I'll never forget uh, some of, one of my graduate mentors. He would often say, the poor people that were born in Poland, right, in, in the middle of the 20s, or... Or, or South Korea. And he wasn't saying, I don't like Poles or South. He was saying, geopolitically, this is not their fault, but it's a disastrous place to be. You're a weak power in a very vulnerable spot. It's just great to be born in America at the time, you know, after the U.S. achieves regional hegemony. And Amen. I, amen. So uh, there's, the, there's probably the, as much jingoism as I'm capable of, uh, but I will say that. So, so uh, uh, 
Our topic for the night is grand strategy in the Trump era. This is how, how we title tonight. So when you mentioned grand strategy, and I know when we had you on last, we talked a little bit about grand strategy, but what is grand strategy? What types of pieces do we need to be thinking about so then we can apply that to what it's like under the current president? So what, what types of factors should we be considering in sure. grand strategy? Um, uh, there's an article I use a lot in my teaching that lays out three kind of definitions of grand strategy that I think are helpful. One and the most tangible is plans. So, you know. So, uh, so much for this administration. Well, but, but this administration released a national security strategy and they released a, a national defense strategy. And that actually, it's not a bad place to start. You, you can go, all right, how, how does this government think about American interests and how to pursue them? Now, these documents are flawed in their own right because they're political documents and they're, they're not, no administration's going to lay out all the hard trade offs. In, in a public document. There's a second, I think, um, uh, definition then that's useful, which is a set of um, ideas or organizing principles. So the, the canonical example is containment. So over time in the Cold War, you get different written strategies that are orienting the American government and its competition with the Soviet Union. But from an early point, you can see a few big ideas that are structuring that competition. Um, uh, that are laid out most explicitly by George Kennan, but get developed by others. And then finally is just behavior. Look at how a great power acts. Um, you know, where does it, for me, the, the litmus test is where is it willing to send its people to fight and die? Then you can kind of figure out this is what a great power cares about. The Middle East. Interesting, right? Um, uh, and yet every administration wants to do less there. So, so we're, so we're thinking, about, thinking about the system in terms of goals and general like dominant kind of ideas or memes or ways of thinking about things and then how the power actually behaves in practice. And, and, and you can use each of those as an indicator of what are the interests at stake? What are the threats that then have to be countered to those interests? And what kind of power are you willing to use to do that? Those, those are really the three big components of grand strategy. I should add, um, it's not just threats, it's opportunities. So, um, so it sounds like doing like a strategic planning analysis of the U.S. as opposed to like an organization. Like yes, I, yeah, and, and that's why I think... You know, grand strategy has a certain cachet in different circles because business people kind of, oh, I know, you know, I do strategy or university president, you know, anybody that's been in a strategic role goes, I kind of get this basic exercise. So before we go to Trump, mm -hmm. give me a, if you, if you can or if you don't mind, or both of you, give me the grand strategy of, say, uh, a, for a, a different president to give me a, a point to think about how we can compare Trump. We could say either Bush, our school's namesake, or Obama, or uh, 43, whoever you're most comfortable with, to kind of give me some organizing thoughts that then we can turn around, because I want to juxtapose that to see how that looks compared to the current administration. Um, well, I'm trying to think of the presidents I've actually written on and can speak with some credibility on. So uh, I've written on Roosevelt, on Lyndon Johnson and George W. Bush. I, I would say George W. Bush, it's, that's an easy one because 
at the time that they were kind of thinking through their grand strategy, it was very controversial. And so there was just a lot of discussion of what are these folks up to? And granted, a lot of this is in the context of the 9-11 attacks mm -hmm. and how they react. But if you read the 2002 national security strategy, it's fairly um, explicit that uh, you know the US needs to be dominant, no peers. Um, the US will be better off over time the more democracies there are in the system. And most controversially, the US has to be willing to strike first to deal with emerging threats like, like Al-Qaeda. But it was then extrapolated more broadly into a doctrine of preventive war. That is, we're not going to wait and sit around and see who hits us. We're going to hit them first. And obviously, the concrete manifestation of this very controversial is the Iraq war. So that's, um, you know, if you, if you a good book on, on this is Hal Brand's On Grand Strategy. He basically, in his long chapter on the Bush presidency, says, Oh, they had a grand strategy. It was just problematic. Mm -hmm. there, are others, there are other presidencies where it's kind of hard to figure out what the grand strategy is. I think Clinton was a bit famous for this. Although well, I, I don't know. I'd argue that the Clinton, the Clinton administration had a grand strategy of, of expanding the, the, the realm of democracies, and it was based on the notion of democratic peace, to some extent the way the Bush, the Bush 43 administration was, although the means for Clinton was dumping a lot of money into Russia and other countries to try to make Fair, them democratic. Yeah. I actually right? should have said Bush 41 is actually the one who's often criticized right, for, for not, not having, having a grand right. strategy. At the end of the Cold War, the, yeah. and it was difficult. But I, I mean, to me, and John is the expert on this, but to me, the, the, the kind of quintessential American grand strategy is containment, yeah, yeah. right? We pursued a policy with twists and turns and different interpretations Basically, from 1947 to 1991, of containing the the power of the Soviet Union and containing the spread of communism as a governing ideology, and that was our grand strategy. I mean, we fought wars to do that. We fought a war in Korea to do that. We fought a war in Vietnam to do that. We spent billions of dollars and deployed hundreds of thousands of troops in Europe, in Korea, in Japan, in the Philippines. We, we, we built navies, right, to be permanently on station in the, in, in, in the, 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 the uh, what, what for us is the Western Pacific uh, and, and, and the Eastern Atlantic and the Mediterranean in order to contain the military and political influence of the and we built these nuclear weapons that could destroy the world to contain the influence of the Soviet Union. That was a grand strategy. Yeah. And, and, and it, it persisted over a number of, of presidencies. It persisted uh, over decades. It was the unifying principle of American foreign policy. And then there were debates. I mean, do you have to fight in Vietnam to contain the Soviet Union? But no one really questioned that we had to contain the Soviet Union. I mean, to be fair, because it is relevant to the Trump discussion, um, our own Chris Lane, uh, hit, I highly recommend this book, Peace of Illusions, uh, he has a different argument, which is basically from 1945 on to today, the U.S. has pursued one grand strategy, liberal hegemony, which is basically containment for him is a bit of a sideshow. The goal has basically been 
to dominate not just the, the Western Hemisphere, but the globe, and to do so in order to make the rest of the world liberal, um, so that the U.S. basically just doesn't have to deal with geopolitics anymore, right, if everybody looks like us. Now, um, I would say... How'd that work out? Well, it's interesting because it's this, over time, uh, more and more realists in particular have have converged on this view that if there's a unifying theme to American grand strategy, certainly after the end of the Cold War and maybe before, it's this, that we were overly focused on the Soviet threat and were missing the fact that the U.S. just wanted to dominate for other <coughs> reasons. And this explains why the U.S. has been so active after the Cold War, because there's this big puzzle. If containment was the goal in the Cold War and the Soviet Union goes away, why does none of the grand strategy go away? And uh, Why do we still have those fleets in all yes, these places? exactly. And, and Lane and others, I think, and, and, and I would also say the defenders of that grand strategy agree with Lane. They just put a different normative spin. Like, yes, we have wanted to dominate, but that's because, remember the battle days, World War I and World War II? Do you want to run that experiment again? No, let's replace, you know, anarchy and power politics with American dominance. And, and, then, it, and institutions, and then, right? Yes, I mean, and there's it's a, there's good for a, everybody. There's a, ver, there's a variant of realism that, that actually respects institutions, right? I mean, the, there's yeah. power underlying these institutions, but you build institutions, economic institutions based on relatively open trading systems and, 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 and a dollar-dominated uh, world financial system, yeah. right? And, and, and you build these institutions. It, which are underlain by American power, as this realists would say, without American power, these institutions fall apart, right? And, and you build these institutions, and you maintain your military power in order to make the world friendly for you and better for everybody else, right? And, I'm an American. Yeah. I'm here to help you. And this explains, I think, why so that many people... That was a people, joke, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I mean, you know, the, it's what's allowed... Uh, many of the people on the, you know, doing grand strategy as opposed to arguing about it, it allows you to feel good about what you're doing because, you know, yes, the U.S. is dominant, but nobody wants to return to the days of competition and war. And so it's essentially we've domesticated international politics, which is very consistent with a realist analysis. Although Iraqis might disagree. Well, and this has been the pushback that what appears to be um, liberal order providing to those doing it feels an awful lot like war and um, <laughs> massacre to those on the other end. But um, anyway, that, that, it depends, again, on what normative spin you put on it. So, okay. So I think I have, I mean, grand strategy can be a couple things. It can be an overarching kind of uh, narrative like containment as a main policy can maybe also be thought about from like a particular administration's overall strategy, overall narratives within their um, administration and their approach. So let's get to today. Uh, and one of the things that we said a minute ago was that some presidents have more of a clear tie-in to a grand strategy than others. Maybe 40, Bush 41 was a, a little bit criticized for not having a grand strategy. Um, how do we... How do we think of the Trump grand strategy? Is there one? And then it, it doesn't 
it seems to be different than sort of this pursuit of, say, liberal hegemony. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. maybe if there is one, it's different than what it's looked like in the in the kind of general way that the American uh, establishment has thought about these narratives. So is there a Trump grand strategy to both of you? But let's start with our guest. And um, if so, what does it look like? It's a good question. Um, I, I think to the unpleasant surprise of a lot of Washington, Trump has stuck with certain ideas. He came into office a lot lo longer than I think folks thought he would. I, and, and, uh, More's the pity, but go ahead. <laughs> this is a good, by the way, political lesson that when it's hard to change a president's stripes, you know, they're not going to learn in office. They, they kind of know the way they think the world works as they, and, and being elected president is not going to lead you to revisit your core beliefs. So <laughs> now, what are those ideas? I, I think Trump, interestingly, might be the first, and I'm going to use my words carefully, illiberal president we've elected in the sense that he openly subscribes to illiberal notions of how the international system works and hence what the American national interest is. And this is why I think he's so controversial. And, so, and, and by liberal, you, you're not talking about kind of the way we talk about liberal and conservative now. You're talking about kind of fundamental liberal, uh, open trade, yeah. uh, spread of democracy, right. those kinds of, 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 of small L liberal beliefs that have animated in one way or another uh, every American president. Yes. Even even if some of it was lip service, they, they basically thought that these were good things. Yeah, so for example, he has a very hard time accepting that cooperation can be win-win. Mm -hmm. There's got to be a winner and a loser, and if you're not winning, you're losing, and that means you're a sucker. The whole point of the liberal worldview is that we all benefit you know, if you're enlightened enough in your self-interest, if you give a little today, you'll gain a lot tomorrow. And so you have to play the long game and stick with cooperation, even when it's inconvenient. And he just doesn't see things that way. The other point I would make is he, um, he really is capable of moral equivalence, which drives people nuts. So these famous quotes of, you know, You've interfered, Russia, you've interfered elections, we've interfered in elections, what's the, or, you know, yes, you, you've you yeah, killed people, Putin, we've killed people. Putin kills people, do you, you think know. we're so innocent? Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah. And, and now again, this is troubling to many folks, but, but what's so, but this is quite unusual for a president to not kind of subscribe to the basic liberal variety of American exceptionalism. Um, and again, I would return to the fact that I think there was a sense that he could be reined in a bit by the people around him, I, I and think he's all, them all. I think they've all resigned. Yes. Mr. Uh, Tillerson, General Mattis, yeah. General McMaster, General Kelly. Interesting, so many generals yes. in that who've all left, and he's still standing. Well, and even, that's interesting. Now, why do you think he surrounds himself with these? Because I, he, he's... Um, he venerates strength, but um, a certain kind of strength, manly strength, you know, and um, uh, but then he discovers that the actual generals that he's talking to don't really see the world the way he does, and it irks him, because to them, they're kind of just walking, you know, um, embodiments of strength. And, that, uh, and I don't want to dumb it. I mean, I do think he has coherent views, um, and I think, you know, some of them are sounder than others. 
but he is a, a great subject for this analysis because he doesn't look like or talk like the other presidents. And it's not just his lack of government or whatever experience. His beliefs are so different from the norm. So it's it's trade, right? The, the, the liberal, American-built liberal order was based on a notion that trade is good, trade is win-win. We want to expand the, 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 the realm of, of international trade. He doesn't like that. Uh, democracy, he doesn't really care. Indifferent. Yeah. Right. Pl plenty of presidents have gotten on with autocrats just fine. He seems to enjoy it uh, to, a, to a level that most presidents... But, but it's not just that. It's also the denigration of democratic allies. Right. Oh, I think the key one is alliances. Right. He, he, he doesn't believe, he believes that alliances are free riders on American power. And the fact that, that our, our core alliances, not, not, not the ones in the Middle East, but Japan, South Korea, and NATO, uh, that these, uh, although these, uh, these alliances are with democratic states, this has harmed the United States because the, these, these smaller countries just taken advantage of. Yeah, he doesn't see the, this is a key litmus test issue. Um, if there's anything that the prevailing, call it what you will, liberal hegemonic American grand strategy was built on, it was this notion of the inherent value of these core alliances. Because it was these core alliances that basically allowed the U.S. to project power and influence into these key regions, but in a way that didn't require a lot of um, muscle flexing. You know, you're... We are there on behalf of the Germans and the Japanese. You know, these are our core allies, and we're providing security to these regions so that these states don't have to do it for themselves. And if they have to do it for themselves, we're going to rerun the 20th right. century the, again. The, with all the last time the Germans and the Japanese thought they had to supply yes, security for themselves, the story didn't end happily. And Trump just says, I don't get that. Like, what are we getting out of providing security for these people? Why aren't they paying? It's the mafia, you know. Yeah. Hey, come on, pay up, you know, because he just simply doesn't define the national interest in the way that uh, uh, I hate to use this word, the establishment tends to do, and that's why he drives them nuts. But don't you think that he also has a notion, uh, in terms of grand strategy, that China's the big problem, and we need Russia on our side against China? I, I mean, that's probably it, it's giving not, him a little too much credit. But, really, it um, seems pretty simple. See that <laughs> we haven't quite got. I mean, yes, if you give him the benefit of the doubt, you know, Steve Bannon. Why else? Why else would he be as obsequious toward Russia as he is? I, I don't know. It's not the well, it's not the peak. It's not the PT. Business interest, but I, you know, um, it's it's not it's not Trump Tower Moscow. Yeah. It's not the P tape. It's 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 not you know Putin having something on him. I I think he fundamentally sees China as the problem, and you know Germany's not going to help us. We need a big country to help us. So he sees Russia as a place that we he he's willing to cultivate to an extent that no other American politician is willing to. I think that's probably the best spin you can put. Um, I mean, and this gets to a bigger issue, which is for any realist like me, um, Trump has some good instincts, we'd say, and he even says the right thing on occasion, and then the execution <laughs> is something to behold. Um, and uh, Give me an example where he said the right thing. 
I think I think it's valuable for him. How, how do I put this? To to um, encourage a debate about the value of alliances. I every think that, every president has done that. He's not he's, a public debate. I mean, he he's going after the heart of the issue. You know, this is not about. But usually, the way it's done is. Ten affirmations of how valuable yeah. the NATO alliances, and then behind closed doors, you guys better pay up more. And that's a bit of what I cover in, in the article I wrote with with Josh Shipperson. Um, Who? Uh, our my former colleague. Our, our former, former our colleague. Former colleague. <laughs> our yes. former colleague, Josh Shipperson. But but Trump just says out loud, "What are we getting out?" Of? I mean, this is anathema. You don't say yeah. things like that. So. No, if, he's, slay, he's trying to slay the sacred cows. There's no question about that. And, and his critics, I think, will kind of say there's no strategy there. He is just, he's myopic, and he doesn't get the value of these alliances and these institutions. And if there is a strategic case, it's yours, which you're making, which is, no, he, he, he got at an early point how zero-sum things are with another rising power like China, and he and Steve Bannon, right, were willing to do the kind of painful things like fight an economic war with them that um, the liberals can't be trusted to do because they're all hooked on this notion that we all win, right, through through trade and interdependence. How much of, some of it sometimes seems like the actual overriding strategy is just anti what the previous president did? Like whatever I, thing yeah. that Obama yeah, was for, yeah, that's not a grand strategy. Is, no. is, is, is just the thing, you know. So like warmer relationships with China now, now more tense with China. Bad relationships with Russia now trying to have better relationships with Russia. Iran yeah. deal, you know, Paris Accords. Everything feels like from a <laughs> international engagement, friendly with Europe, whatever it is. It seems like it's uh, just anti what the previous. I'd love to hear. Greg's take on this because I think that applies best to the Middle East yeah. because he where whenever he's had a sound instinct on something when it comes to the Middle East there's nothing good so no realist I know of would have supported withdrawing from the JC the agreement with Iran to cap its nuclear, the nuclear yeah, the Iran no nuclear realist I can think of would support being so one-sided in support for you know, Israel, the Saudis, and, and that group of allies, basically taking their side in the intra-regional uh, dispute with Iran. And so, but a lot of realists would support not confronting Iran after Iran attacked the Saudi oil facilities. There's some, yes. And so this is the one I of think the I'm most, sitting next to one. <laughs> yeah, we yelled at each other about that in the hallway. Uh, but one of the most interesting things about Trump that we're seeing over and over is he... He really doesn't, I mean, Hillary Clinton was very comfortable with using the stick. Yeah. Or, you know, Madeleine Albright, um, you know, all these, all these liberal multilateralists could live with war at the end of the day. Trump faces the reality and shies away. Yeah. He could, wait a minute, this might kill 150 people? He, I, you he, know. he talks tough, yeah, but, but he, he doesn't want to fight war. It's very interesting, and... Um, so, I mean, a bit of a depression, I guess, but I do think um, in the Middle East, there is some, uh, that is where I would say the anti-Obama instinct is, uh, is rearing its head. But I, Greg might have a different take on no, that. No, I, 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 I think that he has a grand strategic notion of the Middle East, which is we're not going to fight any more wars there. But President Obama had that notion as well, yeah. and he got sucked in to, to, you know, he made a choice to enter a war in Libya. 
He returned to Syria and Iraq with the rise of ISIS. Not, not in the full-scale war, but I mean, we were engaged militarily. We were bombing, we were, and, and we had troops on the ground in these places. I, I, the interesting thing about Trump is that while he and Obama had, had that same fundamental, the Middle East isn't that important and we shouldn't be engaged in wars there, uh, Obama couldn't get out. Um, Obama's strategy was make a deal with Iran and try to get out. Yeah. Trump's strategy is, I don't want to fight wars in the Middle East, but boy, I'm going to be tough on Iran, and and that's the yeah. and that's the fundamental yeah. uh, tension for him is you're going to be tough on Iran, and because you think that the Iranians are either going to collapse, the regime's going to fall, or they're going to surrender and come to the table and give you a much much better deal than they gave Obama, and and they just it was analytical malpractice, if you will, they they didn't. Trump never realized that the Iranians had a third option, which was make life really difficult for the U.S. But that's that's getting a little too much into the Middle East, don't you think, Justin? From the Middle East expert, I expect no less. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been learning about the Middle East for a long time from you. Yeah. yeah, likewise. All right, so uh, thank you, John. Thank you. Um, and since we skipped out on questions last time, we've left uh, a little bit of extra time this week, and we... We have a really nice-sized crowd this week, so thank you all. Hundreds and hundreds of people. <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of individual cells that showed up to... Okay, sorry. That natural sound. Not, not even pity laughs. Okay, so what we'd like is any questions from you, either about um, topics today, just in general, other things you've heard from the podcast, things you'd like to ask us. Yeah. What does this have to do with impeachment? Yeah, we're talking about impeachment again, if you didn't get enough of that in the last episode. There has been some things that have happened since then. So if you will, just kind of raise your hand, and I'll recognize you, and then repeat your question to the microphone, and we'll, we'll address it. Not all at once now. <laughs> the number of hands that have been raised, is, it's beyond counting. Yes? Dr. Schuchler, does the security and defense strategy reflect the president's actions, or is there a, a mm -hmm. divergence between what's written and what's taken place? I... So, so the question is, the, the Trump administration, like every administration, yeah. develops a national security strategy. It publishes it. I think we, we can all pretty much assume that President Trump never read a word of the, of the national security strategy. Uh, and so, do these words mean anything? I think uh, historians will look at those documents as an artifact of an early stage in the administration where, um, you know, uh, certain advisors were able to get out, quote, get out ahead of the president and, and put certain things in writing that I don't think reflected his views. Um, the, I mean, the emphasis on alliances and yeah. the strategy. And this is why they were met with a fair amount of contentment by those that were worried about, you know, the new departure that Trump might represent. The problem was he ne he didn't change his stripes. I mean, so the one the I think the one uh, important though substantive shift that you'll see in those documents that I think will have some staying power is this focus on great power politics. So um, says the realist, but I do think um, you know this is something that that McMaster really was the one in charge. Well, it was his, uh, his aide, Nadia Shadlow, who I think wrote the actual document. Um, th this is something they definitely tried to emphasize that, 
you know, after 9-11, the focus was on the war on terror, and that's going to change when you have rising powers like a, a rising China and a resurgent Russia to deal with. And that, I think, is going to be enduring because that reflects something real. But the answer was, given those, given these threats, America needs to kind of double down a bit on, you know, a lot, uh, on, on firming up its alliances and, quote, balancing against these threats. And that really, I don't think, represented Trump's instincts. Um, and now McMaster's gone, and Shadlow's gone, and Mattis is gone, and we've already gone through the list. So They're all gone. I mean, I, I don't know if we'll see another national security strategy from this administration, but if it had been written by Steve Bannon, it would have been a different document and probably closer to what Trump actually believed. Good question. Thank you. Yes? Um, so, Dr. Gauze, Trump's strategic rationale in cozying up to Russia is that the main issue is China, and that's you need to do everything to deal with that issue. Why behave in such an, a different manner with Iran than... So the, so the question is, if, if, if I'm right and President Trump's grand strategic view is very focused on China, and so you bring Russia in, you try to be nice to Russia, uh, why would you uh, go out of your way to try to pressure Iran? Yeah. Uh, which, you know, has developed a decent relationship with Russia and, and, and would be a side issue on, on this uh, if you really wanted to focus on China. I, I, I think that... Uh, I think that there are a couple of reasons that have nothing to do with grand strategy. Uh, I, I think that uh, the president came into office, and here's where uh, the, this idea that, that anything that Obama did was a bad idea. I think that on Iran, it really did take. And there are a number of people on the Republican side, on the neo who were neoconservatives, a, uh, a, a grand strategy that we, we dealt with earlier in the podcast in a, in a, in a somewhat peripheral way. But, but this is neoconservatism raising its head, right? Which is Iran is a major threat because it has an ideology that's counter to ours and it's threatening our one democratic ally in the Middle East, which is Israel. The neocons are, are very pro-Israel. It's also threatening, quote unquote, our oil in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states and, and that the Iranians have to be contained. So I think that it, it came together to some extent in, in the president's desire to be different from President Obama in his belief that a, a very strong pro-Israeli policy would garner support uh, within the American Jewish community and also more, I think more importantly for the president, in the American evangelical Christian fundamentalist Christian community where support for Israel is extremely strong. And so since the government in Israel, the, the Netanyahu government in Israel, campaigned openly against the Iran nuclear deal and was uh, not shy in criticizing President Obama directly uh, for the deal. I think that, that President Trump saw the Middle East more in the context of those political uh, uh, factors than in, than in grand strategy. And I should add, there, there's an, an element to Trump's thinking we haven't really talked about, which he has a clash of civilization streak that you can yeah. also see in Steve Bannon's thinking. This is where his nativism comes from. Right. So, and this manifests in different ways, but he, Islam, he has views on that. I mean, you can, it's not irrelevant to this. I think unlike 
some of the other major geopolitical issues, he has certain views about the clash between the West and I think is or certain kinds of I, I think that are that, that make it hard for him to reconcile his policy right. in this region and, and, you know, with other parts of his. Although I mean, he embraced the Saudis. You know, his first foreign know, trip was to Saudi Arabia. I'm still and, not and, sure and, how to and, and, sense and, and, and I got to tell you, they're Muslims. But you know, I mean, to, have you been there? Yeah, once yeah. or twice. Uh, to, <laughs> But, you know, I, I mean, it brings it back to the immigration issue and yeah. all. I, I, I think that, That's you know, one can, one can argue there's no, it's no accident that he sees the Chinese as a threat and the Russians as a potential ally. Yeah, I mean, and, and this, this point that he's our first openly a liberal president, he is a liberal on these right. Im immigration and identity issues. Exactly. And, and I don't think he would resist that label no. of, I'm a nationalist. Here's right. how, it, you know, here's what I mean. So, yeah. Uh, so, following that logic, uh, why then, if he wants Russia in, like, you know, why then would, would he, like, undermine his European allies? Because right. So, the question is, if, if, if the president wants Russia in on the American side, why wouldn't you try to bring Russia in with NATO allies in kind of a European framework, which is to a great extent what our grand strategy was at, in the post-Cold War period, maybe not under Bush 41, but certainly certainly under Clinton, and, and to some extent at the beginning under W. Bush, right, who looked into Putin's eyes and saw his soul and saw that he was an okay guy. John. Well, I mean, it, <laughs> I mean, I think that's assuming a harmony of interests in Europe. I mean, that's part of the liberal view is that Europe whole and free. There's no reason for bickering here, you know. Uh, and um, because historically, you've always gotten along so well. <laughs> but let's say maybe Putin and Trump see the world in somewhat similar ways, which is there are big dogs and little dogs, and the big dogs, uh, you know, they deal directly with each other and are deserve a little space and autonomy. I mean, I think this is where realism and, and Trump converge a bit. I don't think Trump is bothered by the notion that Russia deserves a sphere of influence of some kind. And a lot of realists are comfortable with that. That is totally inconsistent with a Europe whole and free. The whole, the whole part means no spheres of influence except for the United States gets one. Yeah. All of which Europe. Is, which is all of it. <laughs> but nobody else. Yeah. But in a, again, we, get, we get a sphere. All, all of it. Of it. Uh, but, but see, that's the tension, though. So if, if, if your strategy for bringing Russia in is to deal directly with them as a kind of near peer, yeah. you, that's not consistent with we want you to be part of our sphere of influence in Europe. That's right, not right. going to work. And so when, when, when Russia goes into Ukraine, <laughs> when Russia goes into Ukraine and, and annexes Crimea, uh, I think Trump basically said, well, yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's theirs. That happens. That, that, you know, that, that's not something that would bother me that much. But Republicans push back on that enormously. Yeah. And, and, you know, in the same way you could, you could see just in, in the last couple of days, Republicans yeah. pushing back on, on Trump's... Uh, declaration, you know, after a, a, a nice conversation with Ms. Mr. Erdogan, the president of Turkey, oh, we're leaving Syria. Uh, it was Republicans as much as Democrats who pushed back on that. 
Well, and this is, I mean, since it's come up now, the Ukraine, it's painful for a realist to see what's about to happen with the impeachment stuff in Ukraine, because now it's going to become a sec, a sacrosanct position that if you've promised military aid to a, to a state, thou shalt not ever use that as leverage because that state deserves every dollar of that aid. They're a beleaguered victim. Well, you know, well, so, well uh, there's, there's leverage to get foreign policy goals no, that's and leverage idea. to have an, inv an investigation of the Biden. You know, I, and I see the difference. I'm just saying that, uh, you know, this is why Trump is the worst messenger for realism. <laughs> um, I don't have a problem with playing a bit of hardball with other states to kind of get your prerogatives secured. Yes, you shouldn't play hardball in order to smear an opponent. This is obvious to most <laughs> people. Obvious uh, to most. Yeah. Anyway. Hashtag. <laughs> do, we have, do we have one more before we call it an evening? Not all at once now. In the back. Economic interdependence. How do you think the Trump administration sees that? What are the limits? So economic interdependence, which is, as uh, we've been talking about, in, in a, a liberal world order view, is, is a great thing. You want more inter interdependence, yeah. more trade, more investment. Even, you know, if you're in the European Union, more labor moving across borders. We kind of know how the president feels about labor moving across right. borders. <laughs> well, I think uh, it's a great question because I think the liberal theory of victory over time is um, if everybody is getting rich, our reasons for bickering will decline. And um, if you start then viewing economic interdependence as a fundamentally competitive phenomenon, as Trump does, it, it, that's directly in conflict with the liberal view of economic interdependence, which is we're all getting better off. And um, uh, I think every grand strategist should be very interested in economic issues and economic statecraft because um, you can kind of, it does fit into the larger picture. Uh, I, I think this is one of the reasons Trump is a bit isolated in the grand strategic debate because, um, again, many people can get behind some of his ideas, not many, some of us, about alliance relations, etc. But um, even hardcore realists kind of recognize that the U.S. has gotten really rich <laughs> off of um, economic interdependence. It hasn't been good for every sector or every industry. Um, but there, I think there's a real debate among realists over, over this question. And I'm surprised. I think, I think, to his credit, Chris Lane was early in saying the U.S. should be more mercantilist like Trump is. Um, but I don't, I don't know how many even realists would subscribe to that. I well, think it's uh, a real di dividing issue. Although, I, I mean, one of the things that unites the president and two of the top three challengers on the Democratic yeah, that's side, fascinating. Uh, Senator Sanders and, and Senator Warren, is a, a real, a, a very skeptical view of the advantages yeah. of international trade. It's really interesting. Uh, uh, Bernie Sanders has been has been there for decades criticizing trade deals, uh, and Senator Warren, uh, Senator Warren's position, frankly, on trade, I think, is indistinguishable from President Trump's. Yeah. 
It's probably I, 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 more protectionist. It might be more protectionist <laughs> than President Trump. And I say that with Trump's. great respect for her. Right, acumen. right, right. And it uh, might be more protectionist than President Trump. So I think that one of the one of the the core fundamental pillars of this international liberal order that American grand strategy has yeah. tried to build, that one might be the one that is crumbling in terms of public mm, support yeah. the most. To the horror of our economics colleagues. To the, to the, well, to the, to the horror of some people like me who like to drink French wine and Italian wine and who drive cars that at least some of the parts are made in Japan and, and who actually think NAFTA and the creation of, uh, of a North American supply chain uh, has actually been good for, on the whole, all three countries. Although, as you say, sectors, uh, some sectors benefit more and some sectors less. But We'll have to have uh, Raymond Roberts in the back. Yeah. We had him here for a whole episode to explain why trade is good. Right. Uh, and he makes a very convincing argument, right. I think. Right. We'll have to invite Elizabeth Warren on the podcast to make the argument, <laughs> make the argument against. Yeah. Right. That'd be fun. Yeah. I'd like to hear her argument. Yeah. What? So, John, thanks so much. Thank you. This was great. It's great yeah. fun. And uh, thanks so much for the audience thanks, for being here thanks tonight. To, thanks to everybody. Justin, Justin, what do we got next? So our next recording will be on October 22nd, to remind everyone. We'll be here again uh, in historic downtown Bryan at Downtown Uncorked, recording live starting at 6 p.m. And, and who are our guests? And our guests that week are um, Dr. Will Brown and Dr. Ellie Shu, and they will be with us talking about the third sector, the nonprofit sector, and improving outcomes for society. And we'll ask them what that has to do with impeachment. And grand strategy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody.